Hello and welcome to a brand new limited edition podcast about Bridgerton on Netflix. My name is Amrita and I am joined here today by Beth from Beth Loves Bollywood. Hi Beth. Hello, this is going to be so fun. So, uh, did you know about Bridgerton beforehand or was it like news when I told you to watch it? It was news when you told me to watch it, although at about the same time, several other people also told me to watch it. (laughs) (laughs) So clearly it was destiny. I would certainly watch it. But no, I didn't know the books at all. Yeah, I didn't know anything. I would say I'm a voracious reader. I read quite a bit and I've been doing that since I was about three. And one of the things that I love to read is romance. So not only did I know that Bridgerton was coming to Netflix but and I was pretty excited about it, but also I had read the series when she first began publishing them about 20 years ago or so. I haven't read them or reread them in a very long time, so my memory of the books is a little bit hazy at this point. I love historical romance. I love uh, I love period dramas, and Beth, you love period dramas as well. I think it's the website Go Fug Yourself where they talk about historical people having romantical problems. <laughs> <laughs> as a favorite genre and I would say I'm a big fan of that genre as well I'm very happy to see people in the past having love life issues well there's no doubt of that in historical romance now um (laughs) when the series came out romance readers um kind of refer to their own community as romance landia um it's a bit twee but you know it's fun also and it's a Uh, It's a bit of a play. And um, in Romancelandia, for years and years and years, people have been talking about how nobody in the media ever talks about romance novels in anything other than sneering, condescending tones. And they're very dismissive about it. And they never really pay attention to it as serious literature or a serious part of popular culture. That's really strange because romance novels, if you talk to anybody who's in publishing, they'll tell you that these are the backbone of the publishing industry. It was really interesting to me as a romance reader to just watch everybody's reaction to the series and I could immediately tell who was familiar with the conventions of the historical romance and who wasn't. And the people who weren't had... (laughs) a rainbow of reactions which was very entertaining to me for the most part so I thought I'd just start with like the whole historical romance thing because Beth you've you've spoken to me before about the fact that you don't know historical romance that much and um, you feel a bit hesitant addressing um, all the issues around Bridgerton because this is one of the more discussed series that Netflix has come out with. So a lot of people online have invoked Jane Austen when it comes to Bridgerton. Um, Beth, do you think this series, you know, reminded you of Jane Austen? Sure. And I think people say Austen as a shorthand for a very specific time period that is not always treated specifically, Mm -hmm. right? So if you see women in Empire Waist dresses, Mm -hmm. you're going to say it's Austen-like regardless of anything else, I think. This has that, but it also has the focus on family dynamics, marriage, romance, what relationships. 
right. mostly romantic relationships, that there's some interesting friendships and siblings that I think we should talk about too. So I think that is why people say it's Austin. But I think you could put a lot of depictions of fam- of relationships in the past at some sort of unspecified point, And some people would still call it Austin because it's about those kinds of things. And I'm sorry, I forgot to say, it focuses largely on women. Right. So you could have any of those factors. And some people who don't know perhaps very much would say this is like Jane Austen. That's how a lot of us talk about things we don't know much about, is we have one vague label that we sort of know is sort of relevant. But I do think anything deserves more words than just saying it's Austin plus Gossip Girl. It's yes, but also. So I agree. I agree that uh, people generally just use Jane Austen as a shorthand for things that they don't understand. Um, And uh, they're really just reacting to the Regency England look and feel of the series. And um, I think I have like more to say towards the end of this episode when we are talking about, uh, uh, about you know, the series overall. But um, I thought maybe we could just start by addressing what is happening in this particular episode before we start talking about the differences with Austin. So, um, Beth, do you want to like start us off? Let's see, it opens with introducing us to the two of the three, I'd say, main families that we're going to get to know. We have the Featheringtons. They're more exaggerated than what you expect Austin-like characters to be. So they have three daughters. And across Grosvenor Square from their house, and by house I mean, you know, gigantic mansion, are the Bridgertons, who have an infinite number of children who are named in alphabetical order, which I find extremely convenient. I'm all with (laughs) their mother, Lady Violet, who is one of my favorites on the show. So Lady Bridgerton, her husband has died. So her eldest son, Anthony, is the head of the family now. And the oldest girl, Daphne, is getting ready to be presented to the Queen for the start of this London season of 1813 as a debutante. I described the Bridgerton mansion to Beth as Doctor Who's telephone booth because it (laughs) looks like one thing from the outside and then you go inside and it's just unexpectedly huge. But, um... I mean, these are the kind of things that I feel like a lot of people nitpicked when the show came out because they were just like, well, you know, why are they wearing corsets? The costume is off. They wouldn't wear that fabric. And I'm just like, relax. Like, this is literally not Austin. (laughs) Like, this is, you know, this is (laughs) historical romance. Like, this is one of the things. Um, Okay, so who else do we meet? We meet uh, Lady Danbury, who is... um, who's a leader of fashion and society and is clearly feared um, and formidable. We meet the queen who is fabulous and fabulously bored. And we meet the Duke of Hastings who is gorgeous. I mean, that has to be said right away if you haven't seen the show yet. Obviously, you know when you meet the hero in something like this, more or less, what's going to happen, but that was great casting, clearly. Right. We meet Lady Whistledown, or rather, we don't meet Lady Whistledown, but we are introduced to the concept of her because she runs a scandal sheet, and for anyone who didn't know, those are, in fact, real things that happened in this time period in Britain, Um, and this is the Gossip Girl element where she publishes anonymously a, a pamphlet that recounts the social goings on of the ton, but she actually names names, which one of the characters says sets her apart from the other scandal sheets. And it 
I don't believe we even see any other scandal sheets in this series. We only know Lady Whistledown, but that's all you need. And people are extremely concerned with what Lady Whistledown says about them in this scandal sheet, so much so that the Queen gets involved to navigate things to prove Lady Whistledown wrong if Lady Whistledown contradicts her and things like that. So she, she has the highest ears in the country, at least of the women. But we do see men and women reading, reading Lady Whistledown, yes. which I think is important. And Lady Whistledown is, of course, voiced by Julie Andrews, and yes. it is fabulous. Um, a lot of people were <laughs> incredibly offended or because Julie Andrews says bitches in the middle of <laughs> one of the early bits, and they were just like, Julie Andrews saying bitches, and I'm like, well... Maybe you should look up who Julie Andrews is and who she married and the life that she led. She's also an actor, so... Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Tiny detail. Next, the Featheringtons have an unexpected guest. Their father's ward has come to town and will also be making her debut. And they're expecting a quiet little country mouse, but instead, Cousin Marina is a beauty unlike the poor, homely Featherington girls. Meanwhile, Daphne, who started her career very promisingly because she's very pretty and very petite, and um, the Queen likes her, but she, I guess Daphne's greatest drawback is that she has Antony for a brother, and Antony is the worst. You and I are going to talk about Antony in a little bit, uh, because Antony has an entire arc. So tell me why you think Antony is the worst. Antony is basically, when we see him for the first time, we don't even see his face first, we see his butt, because he is having <laughs> sex with his mistress in the middle of a park, while his, his groom is taking care of the horses and trying not to look. And giving a mighty eye roll. When we meet him for the first time, he's the poster child for basically an oblivious, rich nobleman. Um, and he has an idea of what the world is like. He has a sense of the responsibilities that lie heavy on his shoulders. And he is so consumed with his own concerns that he literally cannot imagine how the world might run differently to how he has imagined it. Uh, that is a style of man that has not gone out of style uh, in the 200 years since the story is set. <laughs> and uh, they're just the worst, like they're just the most annoying. But um, he also does several things. I mean, we'll talk about these, uh, about his actions in subsequent episodes. But he does several things throughout the series that just make me want to punch him in the face. But... I think what Beth likes about him is that he's a good brother, or he tries to be a good brother. Yeah, he definitely tries, and I feel like on rewatching the show for this podcast, I feel like I feel like saying he's a jerk is too broad. There's something hmm. he tries to protect Daphne, which of course he's very much supposed to do in the world of this, you know, in this world that the book creates. Um, he's the man of the house, but he has a very uh, worthy opponent for that title in his mother who mm -hmm. in fact tells him you know like i just go off like i can run this family just fine we don't need to <laughs> um and i think she says that in a fairly loving way like it, i know that this does not come naturally to you don't worry about it i got it <laughs> but it, but he directs his hissy fits and his 
um, what are, are they like overreactions or two quick reactions that need to be studied further? I feel like he generally addresses them at people who deserve them. Mm-hmm. So he's not fully wrong all the time, but he needed to think about it further before acting. Maybe he's rash. Maybe that's kind of what I'm getting at. I think it was the scene between him and his mother early on in the library that really struck me because there she is. She gave birth to him and all his brothers and sisters. She raised all of them and now she's in a position where she's not the head of the family but he is just because he's, you know, the Viscount and he has succeeded to his father's title you know, I've been reading historical romance for a very long time, and I've seen that dynamic written over and over and over again. But there is something about watching it unfold on screen that made it seem so much more real and so much more uncomfortable and awkward to watch. You know, this position of the mother almost pleading with her son to just let her take care of her daughter. And he lecturing his mother about what it's like to be on the marriage mart and uh, to be married. And she's just looking at him like, I was a debutante. I married your father. I had his children. I think I know what I'm talking about. And he just doesn't want to listen because, you know, he's the head of his household. But I do think it's probably reasonable for him to assume that he knows more about the specific people in question probably, yeah, than his mother does. Like, she may know the system better, but first of all, she has not been on the marriage market for 30 years because none of her sons are married. The three oldest children in the show are not married. Right. And Anthony is, what, like 28 or 30 or something like that. So I think that he knows the specifics of this current social scene, and he knows the men because he went to school with them he gambles with them he hunts with them he rides with them he whatever's with them so they both have if they could work together yeah. <laughs> it would be better but of course that's that's not going to happen and their conversation their showdowns are some of my favorite scenes in the whole series yeah definitely but talking about people who work together Daphne and Simon hatch up a plan And Simon is the Duke of Hastings, and he is the latest target for all the ambitious mothers and their unwed daughters. (laughs) And he doesn't want to marry anyone. We don't quite know yet why, but he's not very interested in society. And he is only coming to the balls and being polite because of Lady Danbury, who is his godmother and uh, his friend, I would say. She is not only his godmother, she is the godmother, like the godfather. Yeah. And uh, because Daphne can't, you know, even get a dance with Antony hovering over her shoulder and driving everyone away, um, Simon, who is Antony's friend, um, and, you know, Violet would, and Violet and Lady Danbury have an idea that perhaps Daphne and Simon would like each other. Um, And they, of course, don't like each other. Daphne thinks that he's proud and vain and rude. And he thinks that she's on the make, which she is. She is trying to get married. But um, things progress to a point where the two of them come up with a cunning plan where uh, they will start, well, not dating because we didn't have dating back then, but they would pretend that he is courting her and 
this will somehow make her look more desirable in the eyes of the men of the town and uh he can pretend that because he's so interested in her he simply doesn't see any of the other young women and therefore they'll all leave him alone beth do you think this is a good plan um no <laughs> short answer no this seems like an exceptional invention for the book or for the story i should say and that's that's absolutely fine like if there's no drama then there's nothing there's no plot so that's totally fine it just seems to me that in a society obsessed with observation that this would not fly that it would have been done before and the truth would have come out and people would be suspicious also, I have to say, I do not feel that the actress who plays Daphne, she does not portray the level and flavor of interest that he does. And not just in a, oh, she's a young woman, so she can't sort of way. This this projection of mutual interest and affection that they're supposed to be giving out to everyone, I do not feel is, the words tell us it's working, but the but what we see on the screen does not convince, in my opinion. Yeah, she's uh I think she looks more concerned than anything else throughout the series. She's just a little bit milk toast. Yeah. <laughs> Especially on the rewatch when you know what's going to happen, I was much less sold. But it doesn't really matter cuz I, you know, we know what it, you know, we know that this is a ruse and blah 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 blah. But and the and again the actor who plays the duke is so good at it so you know he's doing most of the heavy lifting in that relationship especially when they're together when they're apart it's different but anyway your original question was was this a good idea i don't think that even in the world that this book that this story creates that this would have worked super well so the trope of the fake engagement or the fake relationship or the fake marriage is actually pretty entrenched in romance you know like especially well in all all categories of romance i think but especially historical romance and i love it like i don't particularly <laughs> care if it's unrealistic and it doesn't work i mean it's never a good idea in any of those books i've literally never read a book in which the fake engagement or relationship or whatever was a good idea or had you know a snowball's <laughs> chance in hell um it was always doomed to fail and it's always a bad idea but that's part of it i think like part of the charm mm-hmm. of the entire thing is that this is a stupid idea um <laughs> uh, but it's born out of desperation and these two are going to have such a hard time of it it's going to be incredibly fun to just watch them bungle it up yeah so you know that's the thing but uh just going back to your original point about Daphne um I do want to point out that in the book Daphne is not supposed to be a diamond uh she's not supposed to be this oh. amazing beauty she's actually and neither is Anthony this overbearing like he's not the worst the way he is in this series mm. um actually in the book uh she and Anthony and Benedict are really good friends because they're the oldest um ah. and uh actually I can't remember if Benedict is but she and Anthony at all events are really close and um she's supposed to be like she's just the girl next door and because she's you know um the younger sister to Anthony Benedict and Colin um their friends just think of her as their little sister too oh. and so nobody's really interested in her romantically because they just see her that makes so much more sense yeah. in terms of what i feel the actor who plays her is yeah. putting out yeah 
So it's like the Queen's dialogue is kind of what ruins that right. effect. Right. I, as we were talking, I was just, an idea came to me, which is, does the Queen, so in the when the debutantes are introduced to the Queen, we only see a, the Featheringtons and Daphne. We don't see anyone else get introduced. Mm-hmm. And obviously there would have been many more. And I wonder if the Queen decides, all right, Daphne's the one I'm going to name as the jewel of the season because she's kind of bland and therefore safe. <laughs> that or because the queen is bored and wants to get this over with no i that and maybe like more of that was filmed and they cut it for time or something because what you're saying about her being girl next door makes so much more sense to me yeah the queen does the bulk of setting up daphne as being a big deal I feel like the show doesn't quite give us that other than in the Queen's words. Right. No, I uh, I mean, this show makes a couple of decisions. I'm sure it'll come up again. But it makes a couple of decisions that I don't understand at all. Um, and this is one of them. Like, I do not understand. Because I think Daphne is very well cast per the books. Um, I don't think she is well cast per the internal logic of the show. And that is really weird to me. Because there are people in this who are radiating attraction and interest and Mm -hmm. friendship and personality of all kinds. And it's not her. So I'm thinking, like, if they'd cast the woman who plays Sienna, the opera singer that Anthony has an affair with, like, she Mm -hmm. sells attraction by just moving her eyes from one side of the room to the other you know if they'd put someone like that in there opposite uh the duke that would have been you would believe their fake romance and eventual romance a lot more i think right so um that's where the episode ends it ends with simon and daphne making their deal and launching themselves as the new uh talk of the town um So let's just go back to our original question about how everyone thinks this is Jane Austen meets Gossip Girl. Um, How do you think this series compares with the period dramas that we usually get to meet, especially the romance ones? We have to talk about two things in particular, I think. One is the the race-conscious casting, which is Mm -hmm. fabulous and historically accurate or not. Um, or hinting towards accuracy or recurring scholarship about the queen, for example, putting that aside for a second, it's just more interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We've seen a million shows like this, more or less, and you have read a million more. <laughs> I know there are more of them than in Romancelandia than, than make it to the screen, which is how I, I consume them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just much more interesting. So I'm so glad they did that. I know it's not perfect and we'll talk more about it, but even just like as a sort of simple viewer, I love seeing different faces in these stories that I know. Um, but also the the use of current pop songs, none of which I recognize because I am an old. But I could, t- <laughs> but because I have musical education, I could tell that that was not a period piece of music. And again, it just livens it up. It's like little bubbles coming up that make this feel a little different, a little more lively. And I don't mean that the other ones are unlively necessary. This just has some different kinds of sparkle to it that I really appreciate. I know the costumes aren't completely accurate. I know the material used is not completely accurate. But again, it adds like a a fizz of something to this that I really, really like. So I, I think that that is what is setting this apart for me. 
because a lot of the emotional beats are are the same and I actually think they're done better in different shows but the the what the presentation in this feels different and it's exciting I like it also at the end of 2020 dear god we needed this <laughs> yes they released did. this very wisely I don't know how far in advance this is all planned and whatever but Netflix to put this out when a lot of you know people in English-speaking world are probably off of work and school for a while and in desperate need of something pleasant but this is not just pleasant it's also interesting and, and to me that is the greatest gift that most media can provide us I think you're absolutely right. Like one of the things that came to mind, uh, and it, I felt this most strongly, I think, when I was watching one of the dance sequences, because um, I've seen so many of these, like you said, you know, I've seen pretty much every adaptation out there. And generally, when they're trying to be more authentic, when they're trying to be more period appropriate, there is a level of dinginess to the filmmaking. It is authentic. Mm. For example, I think of the 2005 Pride and Prejudice, which so many people love, the one with Kira Knightley yeah. and Matthew McFadden. Um, and there's, you know, everything is a little bit murky and a little bit dark and a little bit dingy and shabby. And um, is that, you know, accurate for the time period? Sure, I can see that. But... The glitz and the glamour and the verve of this series is so perfect. It's glitzy. It's fun. What The word that you use, you know, it has like a fizz to it. Like that is the perfect description for it. Um, the way, you know, Daphne and Simon look when they're dancing together, they're just having fun. The music is upbeat. It's a lot more common. I mean, it's a lot more familiar, I would say, rather than common. And uh, because, you know, modern music is set up rather differently from, say, what we call classical music these days, but might have been contemporary music back then. Um, So the beats are different and they move differently and they look different when they are dancing and they're having fun. And God knows, you know, like we've seen like millions upon millions of Jane Austen adaptations and uh, Charlotte Bronte adaptations and so on and every time they're having you know one of those ball scenes and they're dancing it looks like they're counting their steps mm. they're doing a very correct interpretation of a country reel a waltz you know those kinds of dances they have like very specific steps to them and they're very clear about following those steps whereas in here even if they are following the steps along, the focus is upon their faces and upon their torsos rather than, you know, the big, uh, you know, uh, the big room scene where you see how everyone is following the same steps. And putting the uh, focus on their faces and their interaction with each other immediately changes what the scene looks like and what we are focused on as the audience and it becomes more intimate and it becomes more fun um and i i really enjoyed it and uh and of course if we are going to be talking about any of this then we have to talk about the fact that a lot of people who expected uh it to be like jane austen meets gossip girl because that's what everyone said it was uh turned it on and watched it with their grandmothers their mothers you know whoever and then immediately it was just 
Antony's butt. <laughs> and that was an unexpected surprise. That was our first episode and I hope you enjoyed listening to us talk about it because we have another seven shows and we are going to be discussing one episode per show and we hope to invite a couple of our friends to come join us in on the fun. So tune in next time uh, for episode two. My name is Amrita and uh, you can find me on YouTube at Amrita by the book as well as on the Khandan podcast where we talk about films. Beth, where can people find you? I'm mostly uh, on Twitter at Beth Loves Bali, and we should say that we know each other because of a shared love of Bollywood films, which bear no small resemblance to a lot of what happens in Bridgerton. Yes. So that is our raison d'etre in many, many ways, and our raison de friendship. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that's us for this time, and we will see you for episode two very soon. Bye.